Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today in this podcast, we're going to talk about heaven, about how it got there, where it's going. We're going to start off with John chapter 14, and we'll have many other scriptures that we reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. But with the glory to come, how it got there, and where it's going, let's just dig right in. Well, good evening, everybody out there in podcast land. Heaven has recently been in the news. That makes it a current event. Here's a quote from David Crosby. Perhaps some of us out there remember Crosby, Sills, and Nash. Very much so. This is a quote from David Crosby, January 20th of this year, from Celebritainment website. Quote, David Crosby labeled heaven overrated in his final tweets. The late singer's last messages to fans on the platform also hailed the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby as the band's best song and praised the work of Greta Thunberg. Quote, Mr. Crosby says, People with tattoos will not go to heaven. People who drink alcohol will not go to heaven. People who also eat too much pork will not go to heaven. I heard the place is overrated. End of quote. Well, but the only thing he got right was Eleanor Rigby, one of my favorite Beatles songs. <laughs> that was a good song. Really like Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> uh, when we talk about heaven, though, why do we leave out Jesus? John 14, 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prayer place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus right here is making heaven, heaven. Heaven exists, always has existed, but until Jesus came to earth, the only occupants of heaven were the angels, other heavenly creatures, such as we see in Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter uh, 4, 5, and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus, goes to make a place for us as well. Here's a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is from the New York Post, June 6th of this year. Another well-known prophet. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, quote, the Terminator star, 75, that means I presume 75 years of age, spoke about his thoughts on what happens after death, after actor Danny DeVito, age 78, posed the question, quote, what's in the future for us? The Terminator replied, it reminds me of Howard Stern's question to me. Tell me, Governor, what happens to us when we die? I said, nothing. You are six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a bleep bleep liar. When people talk about, I will see them again in heaven, it sounds so good. But the reality is that we will not see each other again after we are gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I do not, he said, end of quote. Uh, so, there's no heaven. Arnold, where's the proof? The Christian expectation is this. There'd be no talk of heaven if not for Jesus. Jesus made heaven heaven as we now know it. So much talk about heaven, but no discussion about Jesus. This is highly important. What do the scriptures say? Well, we know Arnold needs Jesus, for Jesus is the one who actually said, 
I'll be back. <laughs> That's right. According to what Randy just read in John 14. But first, a brief review of one's postmortem life in ancient times. And this is a real short summary because there is voluminous material on this subject. Uh, Egypt had an afterlife for the pharaohs and eventually others as well. When you died, there was a judgment. Of course, no salvation is found in Scripture. You would be met with scales. Your heart would be taken and put on one side of the scales, and a feather would be on the other. If the heart outweighed the feather, some kind of demonic creature, Amut, would come and eat your heart, and you'd be cast into outer darkness uh, or annihilation, as others point out. But now, if your heart was as light as a feather, things balanced out, then you would go to the field of reeds, somewhere in the Nile Delta. And, of course, it's... Let me just say, by making it simple, something like happy hunting land that we talk about the Indians mm. so often. Uh, life as it should have been, in other words, on planet Earth. Now, these beliefs evolved over many, many centuries, sometimes over a thousand years. The Greeks and Romans believed the unworthy went to Hades, and we'll be talking about that from the New Testament in a little bit. Hades was a dark and dreary place. The truly evil went to Tartarus, which, by the way, is a word found in the Bible in 2 Peter 2.4. Uh, Peter says the angels that sinned, God sent to hell. That's what most texts say. But if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, they will tell you it's not hell, it's Tartarus. That's because in Greek mythology, the Titans, who were gods, became unworthy because of their crimes against uh, humanity. And the other gods, top gods, uh, confined them to Tartarus, the worst place they could think of to put somebody, especially if you're a god who goofed up. huh? Well, now, if the gods did approve you, Greek or Roman, you could end up in the Elysian Fields. This is where Gladiator, Russell Crowe, <laughs> mm. kept wanting to go if you've seen that film. The Field of Reeds uh, uh, corresponds to the uh, Elysian Fields. In the Elysian Fields, it was a place actually found on Earth somewhere, apparently hidden, but it was their idea of paradise. But no one goes to heaven, let alone Mount Olympus. The Old Testament view is this. Israel is called to trust in the living God. Remember how many times you've read that in the Old Testament? Well, maybe you appreciate now why that is so. Trust in the living God and not look uh, for some heaven to follow or even an Elysium field. For the living worship the living God in the land of the living. For in the land of the dead, nothing like that goes on. Listen to Psalm 27, 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Yes, in the land of the living, because there is also the land of the dead, and it, it really is a dead place, as we shall find out. All the Old Testament people, when they died, good or bad, sinner or righteous, went to the same place, the land of the dead, known as Sheol, and R-E-S-V and other modern translations translates that now instead of the old King James making it hell, which is... Uh, great confusion. It's Sheol, a shadowy place where life is known, as known and enjoyed while on earth was no more. No one, especially the righteous, was eager to go there. Now hear that. The righteous were not looking forward to death. For you could only serve and glorify God in the land of the living, because he's a living God. In the following scriptures, we will find out why. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Yes, another psalm of David, as was the previous one. This is one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 30. I love it. Um, and this verse is about escape from death, not about some resurrection. 
as we shall see when we come to Acts 2. Note his thankfulness at being expressed. You brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit, that is, to Sheol. He's very thankful. Why is he so thankful? Listen to Psalm 30 again, verses 8 through 10. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Will the dust praise you if I go down to Sheol? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Mm? No. I mean, the answer is understood to be no. So be merciful to me. And of course, he was, and this is why David is expressing his thanks. Why is he thankful? Because in Sheol, there's no worship, praise, or testimony about the Lord and his faithfulness. And surely, God wants that. No, Sheol is silent. And please take note of the desperation that he has to be delivered from Sheol, the pit. There is an unwillingness with the righteous in the Old Testament to die. I'm reminded of uh, Dylan Thomas's well-known Irish, <laughs> well-known <laughs> well uh, poem, Do Not Go Gentle to That Good Night. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a good night. That's why they don't want to go into that darkness. But they also like the second line of the poem, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. They don't want to go to Sheol, even though they are righteous. We have a few testimonies here about the afterlife in Sheol. Jacob has one after he is told that his favorite son Jacob has been devoured by some animal and is gone and dead. Genesis 37, 35. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Yes, take note. I shall go down to Sheol. In the Bible, when you die, you go down. You go down. You go way down. Jacob doesn't say, well, Joseph's in heaven, because we know he was a good, good fella, so we'll give thanks for that. Mm -mm, none of that. This is what David also said about his infant son. Um, you remember he had the affair with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. Uh, he was told by Nathan the prophet the, the baby would die. David prayed and prayed, but of course the baby died as God had said. Second Samuel twelve twenty three. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Let's take a look at Job. Job is really an interesting fellow to look at his view on Sheol because when we start chapter 1, twice we are told he's the righteous man on earth. He is blameless and faultless. There's no one like him. We're told that twice. Keep that in mind as we listen to Job 7, verses 7 through 10. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. There's no return. He who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Once again, important to remember that. That's the expectation, the Old Testament expectation of what happens when you're dead. You're going to go down. You're not coming back up. Does not come up. Job 10, he has some more to say about Sheol, verses 20 and through 22. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, 
like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. Yes, hear those phrases. The land of darkness, deep shadow, gloom, thick darkness, deep shadow without any order, thick darkness. Clearly not a place of light as heaven, as the heaven we know, as certainly we find in, the, in chapters of the book of Revelation. Yet we hear this cry also from Job. Listen to this, chapter 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Right. An amazing burst of faith coming out of nowhere. When my whole body's been destroyed, yet I shall somehow in flesh see God. Mm -hmm. I shall behold him. And uh, wow. References in the Old Testament to being delivered from Sheol are about escapes from death, not about getting out after one has died. Yet amazingly, Job looks forward to a clear resurrection of some kind in the time to come, but not to heaven. And even this hope of some future bodily experience fades due to Job's continuing belief, as you read on through the rest of the book, that for now, Sheol has and will have the final say in death. Another example of the nature of Sheol is the punishment the ones of the ones who rebelled in the wilderness. They rebelled against the leadership of Moses, Korah, and his group. Uh, Moses, in this passage we're going to listen to, is telling them they're about their coming fate, what's going to happen to them, and then this happens. Numbers 16, 31 through 34. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah, and all their goods. So they, and all that belonged to them, went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel, who were around them, fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. Yes, that had been quite a spectacular event for the people who witnessed it. The wicked go to Sheol, as we just seen, as do the righteous. But there is a difference, as we shall later see, as to placement. The wicked end up in one place in Hades, or Sheol, and the righteous in another. But first, to make plain again, and this is important, to real feel, feel the weight of this, really feel the weight of it, about what Sheol, Old Testament, or Hades in the New Testament, same place, different names, is about. Listen to David again in Psalm 6, verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who gives you praise. There is no remembrance of you. Who's going to give you praise down there in Sheol? The assumption is people are down there, but not much is happening. Yeah, Nothing it's, going it's on. Dead. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if there is no praise... It must be because there's no remembrance of God, therefore no sight of him, no assigned meeting times, no prayers. As Job says, no order of any kind. And then we come to Psalm 88, which is actually versed by one of the sons of Korah, the fellow who we just heard about going down in the earth, opening up and swallowing him and his group. Uh, this is Psalm 88. Listen to verses 10 through 12. Do your work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? 
Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, darkness, forgetfulness, and uh, is, your, uh, is your faithfulness declared in Abaddon? That's a word that simply means destruction. Not a place you want to go. Not a place you want to go. When we say destruction, we don't mean annihilation. We mean that down in Sheol, there's no order, none. It's been destroyed, like the order in life on the earth above, where people are going to the temple, uh, having their Sabbaths, worshiping, praising God. And keep in mind, this is what the righteous say they would miss. This is what they, why the main reason why they're agonizing over not wanting to go to Sheol. Listen also, Psalm 115, verses 16 and 17. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Again, only in the land of the living is there praise, especially a joyful noise. And Sheol, silence of God and for God. Now, note Psalm 116, verses 3 through 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I suffered distress, distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Uh, he's going down into Sheol. He feels himself dying. And so he cries out for deliverance. Deliver my soul. And God does. And so now he can return and have finally have rest. And he gives the reason why. Verses 8 and 9. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Amen. I didn't die. I didn't go to Sheol. I'm still in the land of the living. Amen. Because in Sheol, there's no remembrance, a land of forgetfulness, a place lacking the comforts of the land of the living, which come from a loving God. Ecclesiastes, which we know is pessimistic, if you've ever <laughs> it's read meaningless. it. Uh, Fits right in with this. Exactly. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Everybody goes to Sheol. Everybody. Now, please note the consistency that we've read. And these are just a few. We could have gone on for another half an hour uh, of these passages in the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you out there in podcast land are saying, what about Enoch and Elijah? Didn't they escape this? So let's take a look. In Genesis 5, Enoch is mentioned. He's a man who walks with God, and God takes him. Hebrews 11.5 says it this way. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He pleased God, and he was taken up so that he should not see death. So, was he taken up into heaven? Well, we can assume. We have no scripture. Scripture is totally silent on the subject. And, more importantly, this incident, famous as it was, is never claimed to be the hope of the dying. Listen to King Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, 9 through 11, because uh, it's, a, it's a reprise of, of his battle with a fatal illness, which for sure he thought was going to kill him. So listen to this, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah 38. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. 
I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Once again, the land of the living is what he, he craves to remain in. And he says, basically, when I, I'm in the prime of life and I'm going to die, I'm going to go down to Sheol. That's it. It's over. I'm going to be consigned there. You're not going to get out. Um, I shall look no more on uh, the inhabitants of the world. Then, this is why he doesn't want to go there. Look at verses 18 and 19 now. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, the Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Absolutely. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, nothing in Sheol gives you praise, though they be many righteous people down there. Now notice, he makes no mention of Enoch. Doesn't say, Lord, can I go up there with you like Enoch? Nope. And Enoch lived many, many ages, ages before Hezekiah. The story was well known. But there's no mention made by Hezekiah or anybody else in the Old Testament. Can I be like Enoch? Enoch is not seen as a comfort of any kind in this matter of death and shield. What about Elijah? Uh, Elijah, of course, reward from God, he's going to be swept up in a whirlwind with fiery chariots. And we have this passage in 2 Kings 2.11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So did he come to reside in heaven? Obviously, he was headed there, going in there. We can assume Elijah and Enoch were the exceptions. But their heavenly trip didn't change Sheol or didn't make heaven, heaven. No one sees Enoch or Elijah as examples as God's plan for God's people in the Old Testament. We do know this. Heaven is where the Lord dwells. He was dwelling there before he created the world. Psalm 11:4. The Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And then from the prophet Isaiah, same truth again, 60, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The Lord is on his throne in heaven, but it is not where the Old Testament righteous go. To summarize, the righteous and the wicked all go to Sheol. No doubt many of the righteous died in peace, but they died unwillingly. As you've heard, they wanted to stay in the land of the living. Others, of course, did not die in peace and go to Sheol, such as Korah and his group. What happens there? Well, apparently there is consciousness, but no other kind of activity. It's not the land of the living. Uh, if you have heard our AI podcast, and mm. so I'll reference that, and you can listen to that, because I'm just going to make it in passing here. We talked about Samuel, who was called up by the witch at Endor, but we made the point that this was an exception that God made. And the first thing Samuel says to Saul when he comes up from Sheol, why have you disturbed me? Hmm. So that's interesting. He didn't want to be disturbed. Uh, maybe he was used to it. I don't know. But he counted it as a disturbance. Probably what he meant was, this is where I belong, and you brought me out of it. God has put me here. This is, this is what we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be. However, before we leave the Old Testament for the New Testament, and this is really important, it's really good too, listen to Jesus' words about the Old Testament afterlife and his rebuke to the Sadducees for their belief that there's no resurrection. There's no resurrection because 
everybody in Shul is not just dead dead, they're just, they're not existent. Apparently that was their belief. Listen to um, Jesus' reply to them in Luke 20, 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Yes. Jesus doesn't say, and he was the he was the God of Abraham, he was the God of Isaac. No, he is currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Because, verse 38 says, everyone down there in Sheol lived to him. And that's a, coming from the Old Testament, what we just read, that is a very interesting statement. So, there in Sheol, there is life, but we have no description of it. They are alive as far as God's concerned. In what way, given what we've read, were they living? We're told nothing. However, that the righteous in Hades are treated differently from the wicked, and keep in mind, Hades is not hell. We'll talk about it briefly, just to make a distinction. To show that the people in Hades are treated differently, the righteous from the wicked, we have this clearly stated in a parable. Luke chapter 16. The background of this parable is that there was a rich man. He feasted every day. There was this poor, unfortunate fellow named Lazarus in the parable. And he's at the gate of the rich man's house. He wants food. He would have eaten crumbs. He's covered with sores. The only relief he gets is from dogs coming and licking him. And he dies. And we're told uh, the angels come and carry him to Abraham's bosom, which was a Jewish expression for, and apparently their understanding had developed somewhat of uh, Sheol, that the righteous at least could have some comfort there. So he's there in Abraham's bosom. In other words, he's okay. But the rich man, oh, he died too. So we're going to hear Randy read Luke 16, 22 through 25. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Interesting. And, and it's, though it's a parable, it does, as all parables do, contain basic fundamental facts about life or the afterlife. He says he's in torment, the rich man. Why is he in torment? Because he says, uh, I'm in this flame. But again, the flame is the flame of his own consciousness. You, what you sow, you reap. Mm. It cannot be construed, in my opinion, as someone who is fully engulfed in flames because otherwise the conversation that follows <laughs> makes no sense. Yeah. He can have a conversation and it goes on for some time. We're just quoting part of the parable. So keep that in mind. I also find it interesting that Abraham says back to him, child, remember that in your lifetime. It's almost a tender kind of reference to this uh, rich fella. Some translations say son, remember, but it's the same idea. And now Lazarus, who had in his life bad things, is now comforted. And you are in anguish because you are feeling your deeds come home to you and in your heart. And then he goes on to say, Abraham does. Besides that, there's a great gulf between you and us here, and no one can come over to your place, and you can't come over to ours. It's a great golf. On the other hand, remember, it's a parable. They had no trouble talking to each other mm -hmm. back and forth, so keep that in mind. Well, this is exactly what we find about the rich man and others, what Peter says in Second Peter 2.9. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Yes, keeping the the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's what we see in that parable. Now, this is uh, referencing Hades, what Peter is talking about, not hell. Just briefly, so we'll make the distinction. According to Revelation 20, those who are there in Hades at that time uh, will be brought before the great white throne judgment. That time is the seven-year reign of Jesus and his saints coming to an end. And at the end of that, there is a great judgment of all those who have been in Hades. So listen to this, Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Yes, Hades is the holding cell prison for the ungodly until that judgment day, as Peter says, when they'll be judged. And then as Revelation 20 ends, those not found in the book of life coming out of Hades are cast into the lake of fire, verse 15. So to sum up so far, there'd be no popular view of heaven as we know it today without Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus makes the afterlife heaven because of his cross, resurrection, and ascension. This is important, and the main passage we need to see for this is Acts 2, day of Pentecost, Peter's great sermon, Acts 2, verses 25 through 29. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Exactly. Uh, Just a few comments on the uh, verses. Uh, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, which assumes he's there, but he's not going to be left there. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It refers to the body in the tomb. So what do we have here? Brothers, I tell you with confidence that David died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. This is the point. David was still in Hades, at least his soul. Only the Holy One, Jesus, gets out of Hades. He goes there, but he's not going to be abandoned. That means he really did die. He wasn't abandoned as others had been. Now listen to verses 30 through 33. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He was not abandoned to Hades, although we'll see he had to be there at at some point. But nonetheless, he was not abandoned there. That's because the plan was for him, of course, to be raised up in resurrection. And therefore, he's been exalted, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, and has poured out the Holy Spirit. So raised up out of Hades, ascended, enthroned in heaven. David did not ascend into heaven, but Christ did, the only one who left Hades, as victor over death and sin. Listen to Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he said, he laid at his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, 
and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's right. No one could get out of Hades because they didn't have the keys, the authority. Jesus alone has the authority to get people out of Hades. Keys, of course, represent authority always in the Bible. So now heaven has that person who changes the view we now have of heaven. The difference Jesus makes between the Old Testament and New Testament is clearly summed up in the crucifixion scene in Luke, where the one bad thief rails on Jesus and says, if you're Messiah, why don't you get yourself down from this cross and rescue us as well? And the other thief says, uh, how can you say that? Uh, don't you fear God? And seeing how we're under the same condemnation and uh, we deserve it, but this man is innocent and Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so um, listen to what Jesus says in response to this, Luke 23, 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me, not in Hades. Oh, Jesus is going to be there for a while. We'll come back to that. But in paradise, and this is promised to all who in this gospel age are overcomers. Paradise. Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ah, the tree of life is in the paradise of God. And of course, we see that at the end of Revelation, the holy city in heaven coming down on earth, all of that. And to make certain we understand heaven and paradise in the New Testament are different ways of describing the same place. Listen to Paul. He's referencing a new man, but it's referencing, of course, himself. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So notice, he was caught up into the third heaven. He, he didn't know if that was a body thing or out of the body experience. God knows, and he's content not to know that. And he says, I know this man was caught up into paradise. And so by the parallelism, which is, you see that all the time throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament, one line explains the other. Paradise is heaven, heaven is paradise. That's where the thief would be with Jesus on that day. Jesus was not abandoned in Hades, for among other things, he had promised the thief that he would be with him in paradise that very day. But then we must ask, when did the righteous of Hades, resting in comfort, Abraham's bosom, like Lazarus, get transported to paradise, to heaven. Here is a passage that is usually used, and there's a lot here. We could do a whole podcast on it, but we just want to give you the essence of it as it pertains to our subject. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay, briefly, just a few things. The usual, and I must say, I'm probably, I'm going back to some of the, maybe the fathers back way first few centuries and some others during the Reformation period. Uh, modern day evangelicals usually say that when he ascended, he led a host of captives, or as some translations, a captivity captive. It refers to all the bad spiritual entities in the dark side, uh, the principalities and powers that Jesus defeated at the cross, as Colossians 2 
tells us that in the cross he defeated the authorities and powers and triumphed over them. So he's leading them. But my question is, why would he want to take them up to heaven? Mm. It says he led a host of captives. Well, who was captive until Jesus came and won the victory at the cross? The people in Hades were captive to that. Obviously, I mean, it's a place that we would call a prison. I mean, if you mm -hmm. learn the description of it. So he went down to the lower regions. That's verse 9. That would be down in Sheol or Hades in the New Testament here. That's as low as you go there. And then you go just the opposite direction as far as you can go, uh, far above the heavens to fill all things. So to recap, as the New English translation says of verse 27, Acts 2, you will not leave my soul in Hades, in Hades. But he went there because that's what death was, to be in Hades. But he ascended and took those that death had held captive, ascended and took them to heaven, to paradise. And that includes the thief on the cross. Why take the powers of darkness to heaven? That's my issue with that. I have a problem with that. Um, he ascended with the Old Testament saints. But when? Was it between death and resurrection? Or his, at his formal ascension in Acts chapter 1, when he left the disciples and disappeared in the clouds, and angels say, the same Jesus you saw go will come back in like manner. It's hard to be dogmatic exactly when this event happened. But it happened. The righteous are no longer in Hades, but in heaven, because death, as known in the Old Testament, is no more. Jesus resurrected and ascended, has the authority, the keys to open Hades and get people out. Listen to the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can do a lot of these, but just some of the more obvious ones. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 25. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. To die is gain. Mm. Do we ever hear that from the lips of anyone in the Old Testament? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Anybody in the Old Testament say, land of the living's okay, but I want to go to Sheol. Yeah, no, nobody says that. And then Paul says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So I'm not dying yet. When the only two options are life or death, he prefers death because of Christ who is in heaven and has made heaven, heaven. And now we come to the whole crux of this. If you've never understood why Jesus says the following seemingly contradictory, or as the Pharisees will say, you must be a demon, things, listen to what he says in John's gospel about his death, our death, and believing in him. Background for this first passage is Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, and Martha is upset, but she's crying. Jesus is talking to her. This is John 11, 24 through 26. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Wow. Maybe Martha was the first person to ever be put to this particular question in this way. Everyone who lives in the land of the living and believes in me shall never die. Say what? Mm. Coming from the Old Testament, thousand years plus of Sheol and everybody dies and goes to Sheol. Those who believe in Jesus will never die. Here's another way he puts it in John 6 verses 48 through 51. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He makes the point that everybody in the uh, wilderness, their forefathers, they died. They ate the bread that came from heaven and they died. But he's the true bread from heaven. You partake of him, you'll not die. This is why later on, they, so many left Jesus say, who can understand this? Mm, hard saying. Hard say. uh, he'll live forever. And then, one more time, and to show you how it ruffled the feathers of the religious leaders, John 8, 51 through 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Never taste death. The Old Testament people tasted death. The Christians believing in Jesus don't taste death. That's the point. And notice how they are outraged. This is, this is insanity. You're a demon. You're a Samaritan. You're crazy. You need, you need to die. Christian dying is glorious because Hades has been conquered, conquered and we go to Jesus who reigns in heaven. Death has been transformed into a passage to glory. These kind of statements by Jesus are never found in the Old Testament. Moses never says to the people, believe in God and you'll never die. Everybody knew what death was. David never says it. Solomon, nobody else. This is because Jesus alone has conquered death. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, brought to light what life is and immortality. In the Old Testament, you don't look forward to death. New Testament, you look forward to death. And so we Christians have come to a new arrangement, a new arrangement after death. And this passage from Hebrews 12, the author first talks about Mount Sinai and all the thunder and the lightning and people fearing and dreading and horrible things happening and darkness. But that's not for Christians. Now it's New Testament times. Listen to Randy reading Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the saints of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the one we find in the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 21 that comes down out of heaven the heavenly jerusalem as it's called uh, or as paul calls it in galatians the uh, jerusalem above who's the mother of us all and to the angels they've gathered there festival gathering meaning they're having a good time joy 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 you don't have this in sheol you don't have it in hades and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven that's of course christians rolled in heaven because the names are in the book of life and to uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's main references to the Old Testament saints who now have, with the fullness of heaven, and they're there, they've been brought to their perfection as spirits after death. And this is because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, not like the law. If the law were still in effect, guess where those righteous people would be? Still in Hades. Jesus makes the difference. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. For they've left the abode of the dead to the fulfillment that heaven brings. One thing's for sure. No one today talks about going to the Elysian fields. Much less 
field of reeds, in the, mm -hmm. which I think I'd rather go to the no Elysian. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, the reeds, please, yeah. yeah. No thanks. Jesus in heaven took care of that, and it's been that way for over 2,000 years. The transition from Hades to heaven, people, didn't evolve over thousands of years as did the beliefs of the ancient pagan world, Egyptian, Greek, or Roman. No, this transition from Hades to heaven took place in the time it took to go from the cross to his ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, a matter of less than two months. And if we just consider the thief going to paradise as representing those who would soon follow, Hades gave way to heaven in just one day. Hmm. God's great acts in history may be long time coming, but once the time has come, and you find this throughout Scripture, everything happens in rapid time. The heaven everyone wants to go to and talks about is there because of Jesus. Everybody wants to go to heaven, though some apparently think it's a fantasy, but how many understand that without Jesus, there wouldn't even be talk about heaven, a heaven, or anything like it? we'd still be doing some form of Hades, Sheol, Elysian Fields, Field of Reeds. Scripture says there was a time when no one, not even the righteous, went to heaven. For heaven to be heaven, Jesus must first appear, die, be resurrected, and ascend into glory. Heaven waited the arrival of Jesus to become heaven. Because Jesus, as Colossians 1.18 says, is preeminent and will have preeminence in everything, especially preparing heaven for those who are so prepared. And to our listeners we say... Be prepared. That's the Christian expectation. Well, for heaven's sake. For heaven's sake. Thank you. This ends our podcast. And today you might have questions or comments on the lesson today. And if you do, please send your questions uh, to our email at eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations all together at gmail.com. We'll use your question on air and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.